Today we are going to start off with the Burnley post-match, give our match reaction, talk about some tactical analysis, give our man of the match. Then we're going to move on to the Brighton pre-match, give some history about the club, give our lineup predictions, talk about some tactics and key matchups, and end things with our score predictions. This is Alex. And this is James. And you're listening to the American Toffee Podcast. It is December 26th, and Everton are back to their winning ways after a 5-1 win against Burnley. Alex, how are you feeling after that? James, that is is how you respond to getting spanked at Goodison Park. We were all feeling pretty down after losing to Tottenham, and that was, as we talked about, one of the worst performances we've ever seen, period. And then to respond, scoring three goals in the first 22 minutes, capping it off with a Richarlison goal, 15 seconds left, twirling around his shirt off for the yellow card just for fun. It was fantastic. Totally agree. I think Going in, most fans were not feeling particularly confident given the thrashing that we took to Tottenham. And the way that the last several games have gone, it was looking like we really desperately needed to turn things around. Thankfully, the end of our murderous run of fixtures came, and with that came a Burnley team who have really, really struggled this season. Despite having finished seventh last season and qualifying for the Europa League, which they promptly crashed out of, and so this one was this one was really important for us to to give a really strong response, and I think it was important for not just the squad but for Marco Silva to put away any thoughts that any fans might be having that oh this is Marco Silva again this is what he does he comes in strong to teams and then sort of the bottom falls out and everything goes wrong. This was probably. I mean, the best result possible, an absolute thrashing from the get-go, you know, up within two minutes. That's always key. The first goal coming that early really set the tone and kind of put Burnley on the back foot immediately. It did. And see, this gets us right back up the table and in the mix, right? So we sit eighth place right now, 27 points, okay? So Leicester, seventh place, only one point ahead of us. Manchester United, a little further in sixth place with five points ahead of us. But the point is is that although we were sitting 11th prior to the match, we are right back in it. We have plenty of winnable fixtures coming up within the next month, five weeks or so. And with that comes plenty of opportunity to continue to turn things around, especially this poor run of form. So the lineup itself, everyone was kind of flabbergasted when it came out, weren't they, James? It was a little surprising to see us go back to the five at the back. Disappointing to see that Ghana wasn't able to start the game I think that that's sort of what brought on, that's my theory as to what brought on the five at the back formation where you're trying to compensate for the lack of that defensive midfielder. So you bring in that extra center back and it also benefited us having the wide, the wing backs to create things um, on the periphery of the field, exploit the places that Burnley weren't really uh, capable of defending against. And you could see that, that they both had quite a bit of space, both Coleman and Dean. In hindsight, of course, a very, very good decision. Gomez and Sigurdsson occupying the midfield, both trustworthy, not the most adept defensively, so that but played well today. And then what was the most interesting thing was to sit Richarlison. So my initial reaction was, 
he was just being rested. And Marco Silva came out after the match when the press was asking specifically why he sat Richarlison. And he responded plain and simple. These are players. They're humans. They're not machines. Apparently, Richarlison was also sick for the Tottenham game. And so while he obviously was fatigued, like everyone else, he was also sick. He then struggled. As we know, we didn't see him on the, on the ball much at all. Not that anyone was really on the ball. I think Pickford had the uh, <laughs> the most uh, possible touches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's um, never a good sign. Right. So, right. He, he, was, he was rested. Marco Silva confirmed that. And that's nice because we now know that he could be available for the weekend. To your point about playing the five at the back, I think you're pretty much right. We've, we saw it with City. Ghana wasn't fit. You play three center backs. You know, something that we've seen was an issue previously, specifically playing against center forwards. They'll drop a little bit deeper, right? They'll drop off three, four yards to receive the ball and then play in wingers. And when we're playing four at the back, it sucks one of the center backs in. One of the, one of the most susceptible to this is Michael Keane. And so when you have five at the back, you can afford one of them to be sucked in and kind of occupy that space a DM would, and then you're still okay in, in regards to filling in the space behind. Yeah, and it, it played out really well, especially when we were on the ball, because it allowed you know Michael Keane playing in that central role, and then Kurt Zuma on the left and Mina on the right, allowed us to get a lot of width between those three players. And then on top of that, you have Dean and Coleman way further up the pitch, really creating matchup problems for Burnley because you've got now you know a left winger and a, essentially a left midfielder or a right midfielder and a right winger that creates matchup problems wide and then when the players get sucked wide they're spaced in the middle or you know you pick your poison type of situation for for Burnley and it played out perfectly early on Bernard plays a fantastic ball into Yerry Mina who finally it's about time we get a nice goal from Yerry Mina after his exploits in the World Cup what he's he had some for. nice dance moves too. Fantastic dance moves. And that was actually the 7,000th goal Everton have scored in the first division of English football, which I learned today is the most goals scored of any team in the top five leagues in Europe, which is a remarkable statistic and a testament to the, the amazing history of Everton and their longevity and consistency playing at a high level. So... That's what kind of puzzles me to get slightly off topic. Teams like Man U and Arsenal, I believe also Liverpool, have never been relegated just like Everton haven't. And arguably when you're talking about Manchester United and Arsenal, right? These clubs have been quote unquote bigger than Everton for a long time. And so I'm trying to wrap my head around how we are the first to score 7,000 top flight goals. Don't don't question it, Alex. Don't try to wrap your head around it. Just accept it for how, what a beautiful statistic it is that we can now lord over other team, other fans' heads. <laughs> right. Well, well, we'll hang that one on the wall. Yeah, well, you can put that put a trophy up for 7,000 goals scored um, and hopefully, you know, more to come. But kind of getting back to the match, the way that the stats actually look, it was a fairly even game. They had 11 shots. We had 13. The passes look roughly the same. A lot of similar statistics as far as tackles and which avenues we were attacking down. But I think this just comes down to this is one of the first games this season where our finishing 
has finally been not atrocious. Yeah, they were ruthless. They were com- they were just absolutely ruthless. Yuri Mina, essentially his first try, his first one of I, it might have been his first touch actually. On top of that, Dean scores direct free kick, beautiful Sigurdsson penalty, which he's missed two out of the last three that he's taken prior to that one. Richarlison's finish was beautiful. And obviously, I forget the fourth goal, goal, Dean with the absolute laser from like 30 yards out, they were just really hungry. And they had to show these supporters that traveled all the way there, the away supporters, that they weren't just going to roll over. Totally necessary. I think Dean got a little fortunate on the free kick, to be honest. I think Joe Hart probably could have saved it. He got a hand to it. That said, it was very well placed, and you know that Joe Hart really had no idea who was going to take it between Sigurdsson and, and Dean, and so he kind of kept him guessing, and then Dean you know, makes him make a save, and he doesn't do it, and then it's 2-0. So it's it really, it was so fast. It was almost overwhelming because there really hasn't been a game this season where we've got out on the front foot like that, and it was almost over 21 minutes in when we scored the third. I was sitting at work. Working the day after Christmas, pretty miserable experience, but I was, you know, pumping my fists, spinning in my chair, freaking out. It's like, we're up 3-0 inside inside half an hour. This is not the Everton that I've come to expect from this season. Expected a good performance and, and a bit of a bounce back, but not to this extent, so I was over the moon. That makes two of us. Luckily, I didn't have to work today. Well, I worked. I just worked from home. Quote so that was, work, unquote. Yeah, no, honestly, very loose, very loose use of that word. It was really nice to see, and I think it meant a lot to the club, the players, Marco Silva. You could see how excited he got, even especially on the second goal. And it was nice to see Everton bring the game to them away from home because it's kind of hard to take control of a match like that when you're not at home, regardless of who you're playing. It can be Burnley or Huddersfield, or it could be Man City. And only our second away win of the season as well, coming off the back of the Tottenham game, which was only our second home loss of the season. Really important to to get a result away. We've been very unfortunate in many of our away games so far, getting really unlucky results in games that were much closer than they should have been. And Burnley just looked completely outclassed, although at times they really did do well with possessing the ball. I thought that their strikers did a pretty good job holding the ball up for for good long stretches of the game. I think we had just barely the majority of possession. It was like 50.4 to 49.6 or something. So very close, but the score just never reflected that. And and if you go down that quickly, there's really not a whole lot you could do. They managed to get a goal back via set piece. That was second a deflection off of a set piece, not even a true set piece goal, um, which is something that we've kind of struggled to defend, which is why it has to be cleared first time. Luckily, we didn't capitulate, we didn't concede the second, and we we held strong. And so at a two-goal margin, it, we're always going to be in the driver's seat. And then we managed to end up getting a fourth, and from there it was over. And then Richarlison just put the cherry on top. It was, and it was really interesting to watch it play out because both teams actually played a pretty high line, which you would think for Burnley having so many defensive problems this year, knowing that we have a lot of pace up front with Walcott, Bernard, even Calvert-Lewin, 
that that could be pretty tricky. They still did it. They still elected to play a high line. And what you saw was Everton essentially played the exact same way they play with four at the back. They shuffled the ball wide to their fullbacks. They got a lot of touches. Sigurdsson and Gomez got, without looking at statistics, probably got the least amount of touches during the 90 out of the entire team, maybe barring Calvert-Lewin. Yeah, I saw Yerry Mina actually had the most touches. He had like 90 touches, which playing out of the back a lot, you might come to expect. I thought there really wasn't a single player who had a poor game. Seamus Coleman, coming under a lot of criticism lately, responded well in that wingback role. I still don't think that he's very well suited in his build as a player to play as a wingback, but credit to him today, he showed up. I thought that Luca Dean, of course, was tremendous. He put in eight crosses. Of course, some of those are set pieces, so take that with a grain of salt, but did really well getting up and finding that balance between attacking and defending. I think that part of Seamus's issue is the fact that he's lost a step since his double leg break. And when you're playing that wingback role, I mean, Luca Dean is not the fastest player ever, but he's still a little quicker than Seamus is nowadays. And when you eliminate the pace, you kind of have to rely on some intelligent passing, but a quick give and go with a midfielder that comes close is not exactly groundbreaking. And that's essentially just what he has to work with without the pace to beat a whole lot of players, especially out on the wing. Right. He's a player who's really dependent on his pace. And now that that's sort of going by the wayside, it leaves him as a player who is very direct, not going to fool a lot of players, not going to blow by a lot of players. And and he's really not the greatest passer or crosser of the ball. And so without that aspect to his game, he, it makes him pretty limited. That being said, he played well today. It is against poor opposition, so that will make any team look better. But it's still a positive sign going into this ne- this series of games that that he can stand strong. And if not, I don't know what the deal is with John Joe Kenny. If he can come in, there's been shouts for him. I'm not totally convinced that he's ready. Still very, very young. And it's clear that Silva has faith and trust in Coleman at this point and Theo Walcott to bring him up because I thought he also had a wonderful bounce back game today. And actually the statistics show that we predominantly attacked on the right-hand side. Yeah, Walcott had a really fantastic game. I saw someone say it on Twitter, and I wholeheartedly agree. Nobody makes better runs than Walcott does. He just doesn't really have the end product a lot of the time. He had a fantastic game. Seamus had a fantastic game. And then to give a shout out to Bernard, a little bit more of a statistical approach on this one. He had two assists today. He created three chances. He actually had 11 successful passes into the attacking third, which is quite a bit, and a nice pass accuracy. And for me, that right there is exactly what you need to see from your wingers. He had that one nice chance on the counterattack, or actually, no, he stole the ball, I think, from the defender, charged at Joe Hart, tried to get it on his right foot, which is when it was blocked. But otherwise, that's exactly what we have been expecting from Bernard all season, especially when he lit it up immediately at the Leicester game. Yeah, great game for him. Finally, it seems he may be starting to adapt and get get a feel for the English game. 
And a player who I think we haven't mentioned yet, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, had a very thankless task of pressing and running into a lot of empty space and chasing down a lot of long balls because we did play, despite the fact that we did try to play out the back quite a bit, Burnley were pressing us high, so we did try to play a lot of long balls. And he is, I'm going to go out and say this, our best striker when he doesn't have the ball. And what I mean by that is what he does with his body and getting in good positions and the most physically imposing, certainly, his his combination of height, pace, and strength really makes him a problem for defenders, and they can't forget about him. They have to they have to have an eye on him at all times. And he'll do. He had a couple of really nice moments of hold up play. I think he's showing us that those who may have questioned whether he was a guy that we want to keep around the club, people saying maybe he's not good enough. He's a very young player, and from the signs we've seen over the last few games, I think he could be the future or a big part of the future, if not the sole future. I'm going to go out and say it. I very much firmly believe that Calvert-Lewin can become a 15-goal-per-season striker for Everton. It's going to take another couple seasons, but I feel pretty confident in saying that. I believe he, are, he has three goals this season, which is not too many, but he also hasn't had very many minutes at all. When you take into account the fact that the team is going to keep getting better and better in terms of chemistry and attacking flair, on top of the fact that his finishing ideally will continue to get even better, I really do think that he can become close to starting striker material. Now, with that said, James, who was your man of the match? I'm going to go kind of out of left field. Actually, no. I'm going to go with the easy choice. I take that back and say Luca Dean for his, not just his goals, but everything he did both offensively and defensively was immense. His consistency this season has probably made him our best player. We've had players who've played better than him at times, but no one that has played consistently at at as high a level as he has. So I'm going to go Luca Dean, man of the match. Man, I really was hoping that you were going to go for some type of sick joke and say, I'm going to go out of left field and then mention Luca Dean, who, you know, scored a brace. But, yeah. you know, specifically seeing as how he plays on the left side of the pitch. Anyway, I'm going to agree good. with you. I'm not going to go uh, first take on everybody here. It's pretty clear. Luca Dean was the best player on the pitch by far. Welcome back to part two of the American Toffee podcast. This is the Brighton and Hove Albion pre-match. Brighton and Hove Albion, founded in 1901. They played for 19 years non-league football, made it into the Football League finally in 1920, and made their first appearance in the first division of English football in 1979. So they kind of hung around the lower divisions for, let me do the math. That's 60 years. Yeah, 60 years, 59 years. So that was there. They spent four seasons in the first division and were relegated in 1983. Relegated right before they were able to see Everton win the league again. 
sad story. But the saddest story was soon to come. Several years later, in 1997, the club was on hard financial times. They were not sure whether they were going to be viable for much longer, and so the board decided to sell their home ground, which was a very controversial decision, of course. That was in 1997, which led to them having to play 70 miles from their previous home in another club stadium, which, of course, that caused some serious uproar amongst the fan base. If we know anything about English football, that is very territorial and that it's very closely correlated to geography. And so when you're basically having to do an away day every single time that you play at home, that creates some controversy. And so their board was ousted. So the club was then purchased by, by a lifelong fan. And then in May 2009, a few decades later, Tony Bloom purchased the club, who was a lifelong fan of the club and a one-loan poker player. So somehow he corralled the funds, managed to also fund a new stadium. I, for one, am always in favor of seeing a lifelong fan of any club become owner because they really understand what it means. And then obviously a few years later, 1617, they won their first promotion to the Premier League. Right. It's really important. That's kind of like Bill Kenwright for Everton. Exactly. And and the fans are, of course, over the moon. And coming into the Premier League, most teams tend to struggle, but they had a very good season and ended up, you know, fluctuated around mid-table and ended up finishing 15th, which I believe right now they sit in 12th, if I'm not mistaken, thereabouts. So again, a very good season. Rare to see this team come up so quickly and kind of establish themselves. It's an interesting matchup that we have on Saturday. Of course, also the first team that we've played for the second time now with the 3-1 victory coming last time in early November. Right. It's not going to be as easy of a matchup as it was in November. I can tell you that right now. They played Arsenal at home, at home being Amex Stadium, Brighton's home, and they tied today 1-1. They looked pretty defensively stout. The keeper, Matt Ryan, he looked quite good. But the difference was that they didn't have proper or gross in their midfield last time out. And those are their two main creators. And they cause a lot of issues. They're really quality players. So James, how do you think Everton are going to line up on Saturday against Brighton? You know, Marco Silva could stick to what worked resoundingly well against Burnley and stay with the five at the back. But of course, Adrisa Ganagay came on as a substitute in that game, so you'd have to assume that he is near or at full fitness. You also have Richarlison, who, having been rested and gotten a goal, will be hungry to score more. So I'm going to say that we're going to revert to the back four. I'm going to say we go Coleman, Mina, Keen, and Dean. Keen and Dean. And then in midfield, go. Gomez, Ghana, Sigurdsson. And then the the front line's tough. I don't know. What do you think about the front line? I agree completely with your defense and midfield. So I'm going to go with Richarlison, Calvert-Lewin, and Walcott. And here's why I'm saying that. He rested Richarlison, and Bernard looked like he pulled his hamstring or his groin a couple minutes before the first half finished. And most of us didn't even think he was going to continue after the first half, let alone play through most of the second. 
And so I personally am going to assume he needs a rest, whether that's just for fatigue or muscular issues. And so Richarlison comes in on the left. Calvert-Lewin, he's been playing well since he came in. And Walcott, as we talked about previously, had a good match. Yeah, it's fortunate that the left wing position is kind of our deepest in that we have more than one player who can play there. Uh, and I agree. You texted me when when Bernard went down and said that's two weeks he's out minimum. And I thought the same thing because anytime a player is clutching their hamstring, you fear the worst. You fear a pull or worse, a tear. And that's that's, of course, very serious. But somehow he managed to stay on and play. Being cautious with that will serve him well. And of course, we have Richarlison who is going to come. I do expect to come back in and really look to terrorize the Brighton defense like he did last game against them um, when he had that beautiful, he had two goals actually. He had that that goal on that through ball from Sigurdsson and then he had the gorgeous, gorgeous touch around Shane Duffy uh, and then in on the keeper and burn the keeper as well. So That was one of my favorite looking, goals this season. Yeah, that was a fantastic individual bit of brilliance from him and I'm sure he'll be looking to, to add some tallies to his scoring account. And then Calvert-Lewin can't drop him because there's just no reason to play Cenk Tosin. I think it's at this point clear that Margot Silva doesn't really rate him. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him on his way in January or otherwise he'll stick around the periphery of the first team for the rest of the season, barring any serious injuries. And then, yeah, Walcott didn't do anything to deserve to lose his spot. And also Adam Lookman appears to be injured, though there hasn't really been any confirmation to my knowledge yet about what that is for sure. I've heard it's a knock, but that's all we know. So keep that front three and we'll roll with it. Right. So Marco Silva mentioned that Lookman did not train with the squad this week because he was indeed injured. From what I gathered, he was saying it's going to be a stretch for him to be included in the squad on Saturday. However, there's a good chance that he could be included in the squad the following match against Leicester City. And so with that, Assuming, again, that Bernard is needing a rest, whether that's fatigue or muscular, we're almost set in our front three there. Anytime you put five goals past any team, it's going to make everybody look good. But I did think that Calvert-Lewin does well occupying the central spaces and bringing the wingers into play, which is something that Richarlison doesn't do very well. And Tosin, again, haven't seen him in what feels like ages. And while his hold-up play is probably one of the stronger aspects of his game. He offers very little else. He's not more athletic than Calvert-Lewin. So I say just just let Calvert-Lewin do his thing. He's a good young player. He's going to get better with time. And maybe he can bag a goal with something other than his head, though if he scored with his head, I'd be totally okay with that. So from a tactical standpoint, I'm thinking that Everton are going to look to play essentially what we've seen every single match. They're going to look to control the possession, although we're going away to the Amex Stadium. They'll sweep the ball wide to our fullbacks and they'll try to use our winger's pace paired with Calvert-Lewin's hold-up play to create some really beautiful chances. And I think that they're going to be bringing a whole lot of confidence after bagging five today. Yeah, hopefully the mood's been restored in in the first team. If it was ever even in doubt, there's probably some some doubting that goes on when when you lose that badly and are essentially embarrassed off your home field. However... This is another very winnable game against a team we've already resoundingly beat this season. So I do expect us to come out on the front foot and look to take the game to Brighton. We're going to have the bulk of the possession 
we have to be very careful about giving up set pieces in dangerous areas because it's been one of our weaknesses this season, and that's how they scored against us off of a set piece just outside the 18. And so we got to be really careful that in the counterattack, they don't have a lot of pace, but if we do get a little bit overcommitted, we know that we can be very exposed going the other way and struggle to make the adjustments, especially when you get the center backs up for set pieces offensively, then having to turn around and do a full field sprint back may be a problem. And then you've got Glenn Murray doing his thing, trying to score some cheap stuff, but he's for his age, very good striker. We just have to be aware of the threat that won't be constant, but the spots where they do decide to get forward, we got to be very careful. Right. Watching this Brighton Arsenal match earlier this morning, Brighton's goal was literally one pass dribbled it out to about the left back position and cleared it one pass, almost the entire length of the pitch. Lick Steiner, the Arsenal's right back had a kind of a poor header to try to clear it. The Brighton player, Locadia, just rounded the keeper with one touch or two touches and scored. It was that quick. It was organized. You knew exactly how it was going to play out, or they knew exactly what they were doing and how they wanted it to play out with two players up on the counterattack. And so that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to look to absorb pressure and counter with long balls to their wingers. As you said, their wingers are really not that pacey. And if you're talking about modern game, modern day, wing players, but they're still quicker than our center backs, barring probably Kurt Zuma. So we're going to have to look out for that. Yeah. What do you think is the most important, you know, matchup tactically on the field for us? For me, that is exactly it. It's our center backs playing such a high line that we like to like to and dealing with the counterattacks, studying how their wingers make those runs on the counterattack and trying to mitigate that risk because it's really important that we score first, as you always like to say, James, and we stay up. And sometimes that's pretty hard for us. And with a counterattack, you literally never know what's going to happen. I'm going to say that the key matchup is going to be Andre Gomez and Gilfie Sigurdsson playing in front of, pretty safe to say it's going to be Gomez and Sigurdsson, how they are able to be the link up between our defense and offense because you would expect Brighton to sit back and so they're going to see a lot of the ball. Are they able to make that transition and get our forward players involved or does the midfield of Brighton try to smother and stifle that, remove any kind of outlet and take away the space for our wingers and then we have a very stagnant attack where we can't bring the players we want. We can't move the ball around as freely as we'd like. The distribution's not as good and thereby create far fewer chances. So my key matchup is going to be our Gomez and Sigurdsson against whoever ends up in their midfield, proper and gross, going to be a different issue for us than we saw last time. It's going to be a tougher game on top of the fact that we're going away. That's a really good point. They do indeed like to play a 4-5-1, so they're going to stack the midfield, especially out of possession. So that's going to be pretty tough for us. I, I really liked that point a lot. So James, with all of this being said, are you excited about the match? How are you feeling? I'm very excited. I think it's hard not to. It's hard. A, we're Everton. And so off the back of a 5-1 win, despite what came before it, you, you just get your hopes up only to dash them and crush them and stomp on them. I think this may be a time where 
like you said, we don't play another top six side until the end of February. And so we have a lot of good fixtures ahead of us. This holiday period with some squad rotation, if we can make it out consistently getting points against the teams that we that we need to beat, it sets us up very nicely for going through January and then into February, put, our, put ourselves in a really nice league position. Um, I think by the end of January, you're going to start to see some separation in the mid table because right now it is tight. There's like five points that separates seventh from like 13th. With the way the Brighton play, they're going to we're going to have chances to score, probably a lot more chances to score. And it's a question of whether we can carry over our finishing from that game and sort of forget how it has been so far this season. All right. So with all that said, what are you going to go for your score prediction? <laughs> I want to predict a battering, but I'm going to say a 3-1 win to Everton. Oh man. So you're going to go the exact same score line as November, huh? Yeah. Keep it consistent. And I'd like to see Theo Walcott get on the score sheet as well. Fair shout. He did against Tottenham. For my score prediction, I think I'm going to go 2-0 Everton. I think that our defense is going to be ready for it. I think that our offense has a lot of confidence, is able to bring a lot of confidence into this match. And I'm thinking that we can hold it steady and see it through without feeling too shaky. On that very confident note, we're going to end the show. Be sure to tune in after the match for our post-match reaction and our preview of the Leicester match. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at USA Toffee Pod to stay up to date on the latest episode releases and Everton news. And we'll see you guys next time.